Welcome to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Haruska, and on today's episode, we are covering two big topics for 2024. First, we'll discuss developments from over the holidays regarding efforts in various states to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. It turned out to be a busy end of 2023 on that front, and I will be joined for this conversation by ACS Senior Director for Policy and Program, Lindsay Langholz. And second, we are now into the final year of President Biden's first term, or said another way, the last year for Senators Schumer and Durbin to deliver on their promise to balance the courts after the rights packing of them during the Trump administration. I'll be joined by ACS President Russ Feingold to review where we are at on judicial appointments at the end of three years of the Biden administration and what we should expect over the next 12 months. Starting with segment one, Lindsay, welcome back to Broken Law. Thank you so much. It it feels like just days ago that we chatted and yet so (laughs) much has happened uh, since we spoke back in 2023. Absolutely. It feels like these conversations have a shelf life of about an hour. So these all come with lots of caveats that we're doing our best to get it right by the time it drops. But um, bear with us if things have changed in the like 30 minutes since we recorded. Yeah, exactly. We're going to try and be, we'll probably be doing more updates on episodes this (laughs) year just to try and keep track of everything. Um, But we'll start with the efforts to keep Trump off the ballot, which are playing out somewhat related, somewhat differently in a couple different states. So last time we spoke, the Colorado Supreme Court had issued its ruling that Trump couldn't be on the Colorado ballot. That case was appealed to the Supreme Court. What's happened since we last spoke? We mentioned when we last spoke that if an appeal was filed, then everything held in place. The stay that was put in place by the state Supreme Court would would remain. And that has happened. So first, the Colorado State Republican Committee um, filed an appeal. And then more recently, former President Trump also himself filed an appeal. So those two appeals are now with the Supreme Court. We are coming up on the deadline for printing ballots And so there are legal academics and advocates and all sorts of folks around the country who are urging the court to act very, very quickly, provide some clarity and to allow for the most amount of certainty going into a process. It may happen. We don't know as of this recording. (laughs) So again, bear with us. It's unclear what the court wants to do with all of this. I, I think the honest answer is they don't want anything to do with all of this, but they're yeah, going they to have like to, to wait close in. their door and reopen for business in 2025. Yeah. And so they've, they've got a couple options, right? They can either say, this is a political question, which is one of the things that Trump is asking, and we're going to stay out of it entirely. This is a question for Congress to deal with. What that looks like practically is maybe the worst answer, because that looks like January 6th, 2021 all over again, and that you've got a major dispute going to Congress this time with a lot more legal uncertainty than there was the last time, and putting the question in Congress's hands after voters have all cast their ballots. And what we're talking about at the end of the day is candidate qualification. Is President Trump qualified to be a candidate? And that would be a really terrible, honestly terrible outcome, because what you're then ruling on is if a candidate is qualified after everybody got to vote, and it would create 
ill democracy as opposed to at least some clarity going into the process. There's been increased discussion, as far as I can tell, in terms of the qualification question, because there you yeah. there are several things that a candidate has to do to be qualified to run for president. And some of them are pretty up or down, yes or no, right? You're either 35 or you're not. Correct. Uh, and so issues like that would be very easy for a court to look at. You look at a birth certificate, when were you born? Oh, you either are or you aren't. And so some folks are saying this should be part of that same consideration. It's a yes or no, you're qualified or you're not. And so it, in that line of thinking, it would be strange for the court to be so clear on certain qualifications. And then on this one piece of the qualification, be like, eh, we don't know. Good luck, Congress. It's true. It's it's also, it's a little more complicated than an age question Absolutely. just because yeah. there's factual determinations that need to be made that require lots of pieces, right? It, it's no small irony that former President Trump came to political, I don't know, um, awareness for many folks through birtherism, which was a question, a challenging, a qualification. Exactly. And so, you know, now, now the shoe is on the other foot in many different ways. And it's a novel question. It's questions that courts haven't been asked to deal with. It's a provision of law that was put into the constitution by amendment, as opposed to, you know, in, in the original text. And so it's, it's going to be a lot. For, for courts and others to parse through. Um, but they're important questions and they're questions we should have answers to. And there are many experts and scholars and others who can help the court. Um, it's not something that they should be ducking. We, we need an answer. So the other big development on this front over the holidays is when we spoke last, it was, it was the Colorado case. That's what we were talking about. And now Maine has joined the conversation uh, in the a chat. similar but somewhat different way. Talk to me about what's played out in Maine in recent weeks. Absolutely. So in Maine, the Secretary of State, who if you're a regular listener of Broken Law, you've heard us talk about the powers and importance of Secretaries of State, held a hearing over the holiday season to hear the petitions of several voters who were challenging President Trump's qualification to be on the Maine ballot. In Maine, there's paperwork that's filed with your petitions that says, as a candidate, yes, I affirm that I'm qualified to be this office holder. Um, and they were challenging that particular piece of paperwork because of the same arguments that the 14th Amendment disqualified uh, former President Trump because he took an oath and then he committed insurrection. But this wasn't filed in, in court. This wasn't a lawsuit the way it was in Colorado. This is a process that goes specifically through the Secretary of State's office. Exactly. By main law. Yeah. 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 It's a very state specific process. Exactly. As is all of ballot qualification, right? It's why you're seeing these things pop up at state level, but not at federal level, because our election system by design is state-based. And there are going to be candidates in other states that don't qualify for certain ballots, right? And that has nothing to do with insurrection or age. It's just they didn't get the right number of signatures. They didn't even try. There, there are a lot of political questions that go into how you qualify for the ballot and whole teams that deal with that for campaigns. But this particular one followed the main procedures, which was main voters challenged the qualifications. The main secretary of state held a hearing um, both parties were present, both the challengers and President Trump's legal team. 
And then the Colorado case was decided. So there were, it extended that time a little bit. Uh, the Secretary of State asked both parties for briefing on how the Colorado decision might impact the Maine proceedings. And then finally, we got a determination out of Maine that, in fact, they would be keeping President Trump off the ballot with a big with a big asterisk, which is similar to how Colorado put their decision on hold until the Supreme Court could weigh in should the parties ask them to. Um, the Maine Secretary of State also said this won't go into effect until the Maine Superior Court has a chance to weigh in. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of caution from a lot of different groups saying, this is what we think. Check our work. Um, we don't want to be the only ones out here on this limb. What's the timeline for that appeal in Maine? In Maine, uh, I don't actually know the specific requirements for how quickly the Superior Court has to um, pull that up. I should look that up. But what I do know is that former President Trump, in his appeal to the Supreme Court, references Maine as well. He is using the Maine determination um, to get before the court and say, get before the Supreme Court. Exactly. To get before the Supreme yeah. Court and say, listen, there are a lot of states that are taking this up now. We need an answer um, because I'm in, in his mind, uh, he is going to be unfairly kept off the ballot. And so what I think that you're likely to see is resolution from the Supreme Court that dictates what happens in Maine one way or another. The process in Maine should go forward how it is laid out by state law. But SCOTUS now looms over. It does just put more pressure yeah, yeah, over that, all that, of it. That, that, there's going to continue to be this patchwork quilt of answers at the state level until the Supreme Court answers it once and for all. And and there is an option that the court, the Supreme Court says, we don't want any part yeah. of this. We're not getting <laughs> into it. And so then what you will see is that patchwork yeah. working or not working, however you may see it. Um, and it, it, it will be state by state determined. And therefore, all these processes will go through the way they need to go through. But that is why it's happening the way it is. So that's Colorado and Maine. Are there any other states that may jump into this conversation <laughs> or that are having some portion of the conversation playing out? We've also seen other states have suits filed, similar, um, where it's either a group or citizens that challenge the qualification. In a state like Michigan, they've decided that it's too soon. And so I think that what you're seeing right now is an illustration of how compressed these timelines are to run for office. So if you bring a suit challenging the qualification of someone, but it's before the filing deadline, that person's not even a candidate yet. You can't bring that suit. But if you wait, then there's still a question. And what we're seeing is states have determined in different ways. Okay, well, if you're a candidate for the primary, then either it is or it is not ripe for discussion. And then you move into the next phase and then you move into the next, next phase. There's no perfect time for these things to be decided because of how short, honestly, the official window is for becoming a candidate and running. Um, and so, you know, Michigan reached the decision that we're not dealing with it at this point, maybe ever. And other states, my guess, is are going to jump into the conversation because it's hard to be the first one. So Colorado took that first. It's easy to be the eighth or ninth or exactly. 20th. <laughs> Colorado yeah. took that first step. We, we've seen Maine now, although Maine's process was underway already before Colorado came out with their decision. 
we're going to see um, it's going to be pretty rapidly developing because of that short time frame. Um, ballots have to start getting printed for primaries. And so if this is going to be resolvable for the primary, it needs to happen now. There's a chance it's not, in which case we may see a major candidate have his qualifications challenged during the general, which is a whole different set of issues. If we don't resolve it either of those places, <laughs> it gets to Congress. So it's stay tuned. It's going to be a conversation that I frankly think the court doesn't want to insert itself into. But I should note, they explicitly carved themselves out this role in Moore versus Harper. For folks who were paying attention to recent cases, there was a, a case called Moore versus Harper, which dealt with a conservative legal fan fiction, which said that state legislatures were the only ones that could have anything to do with how elections were conducted in their states. And the court rejected that, but they saved for themselves this piece that says if a state Supreme Court way oversteps what we think they should be doing or where they should be, we can be the voice of sanity and come on in. So if they want to be in the game, here they are. I mean, like, you can't reserve for yourself uh, that that space to make decisions and then hide from those same decisions. Well, you shouldn't be able to. But <laughs> again, it, it an option is the I Supreme know. Court being like, this isn't what we were talking about. We're just about. trying to trying to make logic out of the illogical sometimes. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so what's interesting this year is like, that's not the only political challenge before the Supreme Court. Yeah. The other one that also pertains to a former president uh, relates to Jack Smith's criminal charges against Trump. And these are the ones related to Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. This is playing out in DC. And there was a, we spoke briefly about this on the last episode. And again, there were developments over the holidays because nothing rests over the holidays. What's the update? The update there, and I should, it's a great moment to make the clarification that all the stuff that's going on with the qualifications stuff is obviously not criminal. Right. It is civil only when it gets to the courts. Even the main surgery of state stuff was an administrative proceeding. So different standards for different things. But what's going on in the D.C. Circuit Court, basically President Trump's legal team have put forward the argument that he is immune. He has immunity because he was president at the time that everything happened. And last we spoke that claim um, Jack Smith had asked the Supreme Court to hear immediately to not wait for the process to go through. Um, but to once again, just get clarity as soon as possible. They chose not to do that. Um, and so the DC Circuit Court will get its bite at the apple first. The day that this episode releases will be the day that they are hearing oral argument in that particular set of... That is January 9th. Yes, January 9th. They'll be hearing oral argument on that particular cluster of issues re revolving around immunity. And then it'll go through that, the, the normal kind of proceedings where if that decision is appealed, then the Supreme Court could take it up should they choose. It is one of those things where when you look at the actual argument, you go, how could that possibly make sense to anybody? But we are where we are, where there's a lot of those going around these days and um, things are going to play out with the DC circuit. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Supreme Court, as it often does, really went above and beyond to explain why it did this with a one 
sentence <laughs> explanation. They love their shadow docket. <laughs> yeah. So you can basically read that as the court being like, no. Yeah. No, no, no <laughs> to the hot potato. Yeah. Um, the one issue here, or not the one, but one of the issues is timing. Yeah. This trial, in theory, is scheduled to start in March. It is on hold pending this appeal. And given that the Supreme Court has refused to take it up on an expedited basis, it's hard to imagine that March start date sticking it's we just don't know yet um they they declined to take it up on an expedited basis the first time they still could so should the dc circuit work pretty quickly which it says it will which it says it will it's going to get back before the court and then the court once again will have an opportunity to deal with it um quickly or not and Jack Smith's team clearly wants to keep that March um, trial date. I think that for all the reasons we've hinted on multiple times in this conversation, earlier the better is good on a lot of these fronts because we're coming into an election. People should have the right to understand what what the landscape is, what the rules are before going and casting their ballot. And so um, that includes whether or not a candidate for office has been convicted of criminally interfering with the last election. So where you see his team clearly wanting to keep that date. I think that we're just going to have to wait and see how quickly not only the DC circuit actually can deliver on, on an answer here, but also the, the Supreme court. The good news is, is they're really just dealing with one thorny question it's not the whole kit and caboodle it's it's one thing that they're having to weigh in on it's novel it's weird but it is just one subset of the larger problems that are going to be raised during that the expansion or the limits of executive immunity what when it doesn't doesn't apply to can you case. shoot someone on fifth avenue and actually yeah. be held accountable <laughs> we don't know oh god <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yes. Um, So again, this will also be playing out. The Supreme Court uh, is playing dodgeball right now with all of these various appeals. And at some point, you have to imagine they're going to they're going to take one. At some point, you're the last guy on the court and they're throwing all the balls at you. (laughs) You know, so I like that that analogy at some point. uh, So I am sure that you will be back on this podcast to update us throughout the year because... We're going to need an answer before Election Day. Update. In between our recording of this episode and its release, the Supreme Court agreed to take up Colorado's decision that Trump is ineligible for the ballot in that state. The court will hear the case in February. We will continue to track the case and do our very best to update listeners in real time. Stay tuned. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. As we discuss so often on this podcast, our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By supporting ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, and our advocacy for Supreme Court reform. You also become a member of our nationwide network. Learn more about ACS by visiting our website at acslaw.org. And now, back to the conversation. 
Russ, welcome back to Broken Law. Jeannie, always great to be on this great show. Thank you. Happy New Year. We are in the very early days of 2024. Uh, So before we dive into what's ahead of us, I would actually like us to reflect on the end of 2023. We wrapped up three years of the Biden administration. Give us a summation of where we're at on judicial appointments at the end of three years. Yeah, we at the American Constitution Society can't let any days go by because this is such an important thing. And when it comes to judges, uh, you know, President Biden concluded his third year not as uh, good as the previous two years. Uh, He's 21 judicial appointments behind his predecessor's pace of 187 appointments, which Trump got through in three years of his term. And the problem here is not that the White House didn't make enough appointments. That's a separate issue where you could always use more. But the fact is there were a whole bunch of them ready to go. It's the, prob- the problem is the Senate did not prioritize confirmations in 2023 really at all. And that's why we're where we are. And it's deeply unfortunate. Yeah, and you and I have talked about this before. It was so deeply frustrating throughout 2023 to see months go by where just single-digit numbers of judges were confirmed, where we'd have entire months where only four judges were confirmed, five judges were confirmed. That does not suggest any sense of urgency on behalf of Senate leadership, which is interesting given that it, it was Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Senator Durbin, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who in the early weeks of the Biden administration vowed to, quote unquote, balance the courts. That was their promise heading into the Biden administration. Talk to me about what it would take to balance the courts. We're going to get into the numbers, but we, we talk so much about courts and the need for them to represent the diversity of the country they serve. What would it actually take for Schumer and Durbin to deliver on this promise of balance? Well, first, let me say it was very frustrating and puzzling to me because I don't have any doubt that the majority leader, Senator Schumer, and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Durbin, care about this issue. I spent 16 years on the Judiciary Committee sitting next to them, and they were leaders on this issue, and I think they get it. But that means we don't really understand why they had months where they didn't confirm anybody or hardly anybody for months at a time. And had the Senate actually prioritized judges returning in September from the August recess, it could have caught up again with Trump. That is not what happened. The nominees were there. They were waiting. And so this is why we are are so frustrated. And uh, we think that by the end of, of four years, if things don't happen, what you're dealing with here is up to 90 current or future known vacancies in the federal judiciary. And to leave that to an unknown situation, what could possibly be a very bad situation, is a huge mistake. And so the answer to your question is, you know, what do we need to catch up? What do we need to get ahead of where Trump was after four years? The answer is about 70, 70 confirmations, seven up. Um, and that means getting off to a fast start this year, because as you pointed out, it's an election year. It, it's not impossible to get to that number, but it's not easy. Uh, Trump did not do nearly that much in his fourth year. He had been at 187, and by the end of four years, it was 234. So doing 68, 69, 70 uh, would get us to the point where the rebalancing of the federal judiciary that they promised and that they said was a priority could actually occur. 
Yeah. So just to kind of summarize that, to balance the courts, the goal is for Biden to, at a minimum, match Trump's 234 judicial appointments. That is the bare minimum that it would take to rebalance the courts. Our goal has always been to exceed that, that that should be the floor, not the ceiling. I think that's right. And I, and I think 70 would do that, but we want to do better than that. But then here's another factor to consider. Rebalancing does not mean just raw numbers as important as it is. It also means the diversity of the people appointed where the administration has done very well and the Senate's done very well. But it also means that you can't have two systems of justice. What I mean by this is that Mark Lemley, Stanford law professor, had a wonderful piece that we put on our website. And, and previous guest on Broken Law. That's right. And he, he's one of their top-notch people. He's more of a technology guy. But this is of great concern to him because he's saying, look, if you have a situation where under a Democratic administration, you only really fill the blue state seats, and under a, red, uh, under a Republican administration, you only fill the red state seats, what do you have? You have two systems of justice, completely different, depending on what state you're in. And or what uh, district you're in or what court of appeals district you're in, or what circuit court district you're in. This is untenable in a national legal system. So there are problems with the overall numbers. There are problems with the composition in terms of diversity. And there are questions of geography uh, that have an enormous impact. We see what comes out of that Fifth Circuit. It's like a whole different legal system. It's a scary legal system. It's a wrong legal system, but it's a legal system and it conflicts with so much of what we believe the fundamental constitutional rights of the people of this country are. I'm glad that you brought that out, that it's not just numbers, because Biden could get to 234, and it wouldn't quite feel like the same if we accomplished that number by filling exclusively blue state or blue and purple state vacancies. There needs to be a push much more of a push than we have seen in in the last three years to prioritize red state vacancies. Um, And we're going to get into what the challenge on that front is. But I I just want to touch on one other issue, which is this year is unlike any other year of the Biden administration in that it's a presidential election year. You've been in the Senate. What are the added challenges of trying to prioritize judicial appointments in an election year? I mean, it's hard. It's not impossible. The the leadership of the Senate has to be firm and do, frankly, what Mitch McConnell did, which is he made them come in and confirm judges even after the election. Uh, And that's what this group has to do. What what are the pressures? Well, first of all, you have the enormous pressure that the other side uh, of the majority is going to do everything they can to slow things down and to claim that you're not supposed to do confirmations after a certain amount of weeks or months, even though they ignore almost every norm. I was going to say that that argument is absolutely baseless, given that they confirmed a Supreme Court justice while voters were casting ballots. That's right. It used to have basis. It used to be respected by both sides. But that, you know, it's it's ridiculous to suggest that that's the way in which they behave. But if you're asking me what part of the pressure is, that's one thing. Second is it's pressure from your own members on, on your side. Uh, I used to be one of these guys saying, look, I got to get home. I got to campaign. So there's enormous pressure saying, look, I'm, the polls are getting tight. Got to get home. I got to be seen around the state. So that gets in the way of, of having a proper calendar of time during the weeks and also over the recesses. Other times it creates a, a, a pressure of that kind. 
not to mention a third kind of pressure, which is overriding. And that is, let's face it, Jeannie, the world's on fire. We have a terrible situation in Ukraine, a terrible situation in the Middle East. The issue at our borders, whatever the truth is, is becoming an overwhelming issue in this country. And so members of Congress are under great pressure to address those things and spend or be perceived as working on those things rather than judges, even though judges are involved in in almost every aspect of our lives and our rights and and the courts matter and everything about these issues. And yet they're one step removed because it's a lawsuit as opposed to the immediate crisis and the immediate report of so many deaths or this bombing or this invasion. So these are all things that conspire against getting this done next year or this year. But I actually think it's it can be overcome. Yeah, and you, the added challenge this year in particular is how many of the senators up for re-election are Democratic senators, meaning it's going to be that much harder for the Senate majority to maintain a quorum, to maintain attendance in D.C. when they have so many of their caucus members wanting to be back in state. That's true. I mean, these days I think it's a little exaggerated about how important it is that people be back home to campaign because person-to-person campaigning, sadly, has become, in my view, less significant. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the, the opponent will always attack you and say, yeah, he's just out there, she's just out there in Washington, and I'm here trying to get things cleaned up out there. So it it creates a, a political problem, but it is manageable if it's if it's scheduled well. And especially if they get off to a really fast start this year, that is essential. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I, I think we we have to admit that come you know September or October, there is going to be unsurmountable pressure for senators to be on the campaign trail. And so you're really looking at the start of 2024. And we have said this so many times last year, a, there was not a single judge confirmed until February 9th. And that is what absolutely cannot happen again this year. So talk to me about what it would look like for the Senate to actually seize 2024 and prioritize judicial confirmations. I think the Senate should look at January, February, and March as like the absolutely critical months. The first few weeks of 2024 are going to be telling. As you pointed out, there wasn't even a single confirmation last year until February 9th. That can't happen again if the Senate majority is serious about doing these 70 judges. The White House is going to have to re-nominate all the pending nominees, but that can be done efficiently. That's not really a barrier. So it is encouraging, uh, I will say, that Senator Schumer has already scheduled a vote on cloture, I think on the day this will actually be broadcast, on January 8th or perhaps the day before, on cloture for uh, John Kazin, who was a nominee for the Southern District of Texas. So that'll take us up to one of those 70. Uh, but we have to see the Senate do what it showed it can do. It last year one time did do 12 judges in a week. Not last year, but during the Biden administration. Yeah, yeah. During those first two years, I should have said. So we know it's possible when the Senate makes it a priority. We need to see more of that if we're going to get anywhere near the 70 judges we need to get. Yeah. So expand the calendar first and foremost, or maybe maximize the calendar, right? You keep the Senate in session Monday through Friday in these initial months um, when senators are not so, so, so eager to be on the campaign trail. Stay in session, right? I mean, last year we talked about scrapping the August recess. I think this year it's going to be about 
not expanding the August recess. I think the worry is that the Senate will break for even more of the summer this year because it's an election year. Well, I mean, let's break it down. There's a lot of different ways that they can expand the calendar and get more done. One is what you suggested is simply expand the calendar a given week. You know, staying there at least Monday through Friday a few times. And when you tell senators, look, (laughs) if we get this done by Thursday, you can go home. If you don't, you're going to stay until Saturday. It works. They usually get it done by Thursday. And if, if they believe that the threat is real, it absolutely works. I've seen it a million times. So that's one thing. But you also have to um, consider the possibility, as you say, of making sure they don't leave earlier than the August recess. But, you know, at least part of the August recess should be used for this purpose. Uh, Explaining to people, look, maybe we're going to do three days and it's going to be six days if if you don't get it done in three days. But get it done. And then when they're back in session in September before the election, staying in in September and maybe even a little bit of October. And then, uh, of course, when this is all occurring, the blue slip has to be eliminated to make this really work well. But then finally, um, because you can look at the whole year as a picture here, you know, planning to use the lame duck session to maximize judicial confirmation. That means November and December, regardless of the election results. Democrats keep the presidency in the Senate. So be it. If they don't, well, if either one of those goes, this process is going to be completely different and not nearly as successful. And so uh, that has to be explained to people. The Republicans did some of this themselves. Uh, it is not an illegitimate thing to do during a lame deck session for nominees that have already been, been made. Uh, and so all of these things uh, can be done. And, and you also can speed things up on Court of Appeal nominees by a limiting post-cloture debate after the, it's clear that the person is going to be confirmed down from 30 hours to two hours, which is what the standard is now for district courts. So there's a whole menu of things that Senator Schumer can use to say, look, we're going to do this now. If you don't do it, I mean, once he says he's going to do something, he usually does it. I think people will respond. And I think that's how he gets to the 70 judges being confirmed. So I want to focus in on the blue slip, which we've talked a lot about, but again, continues to be this obstacle because it it's such an undemocratic rule. It allows a single senator to effectively block a vacancy, a district court vacancy in their state. How does that contribute to the issue that you discussed earlier, which is the division of the country into effectively blue courts and red courts? Well, this is one of the most important factors in this situation. It does not apply to court of appeals, which is a serious part of the problem. As I indicated, you know, the first Fifth Circuit being completely out of whack with so many of the other circuits, that has to do with the circuit courts where there is not a blue slip. But most of the judgeships we're talking about have to do with blue slips being used to block the president's opportunity to fill nominees in in red states where one or more Republican senators uh, don't return a blue slip uh, to allow that nomination to go forward. So the blue slip is, in fact, a significant contributor to what Professor Lemley is writing about. And if we're going to rebalance the courts in every respect, as the majority leader and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee said, that has to happen. They have to get rid of the blue slips. This is entirely up to the chairman, Senator Durbin, who's a friend and for whom I have enormous respect. Uh, But again, the Republicans eliminated for Court of Appeals and stole all kinds of judges that should have been President Obama's choices. It's a fool's errand. You really chumps if you don't get rid of it 
uh, at this time for district court nominees. And on that, one of the things that I, I think is worth noting is it's not just that the White House puts forward a nominee and a, and a home state senator refuses to return the blue slip for that nominee. It's that it, just anticipating that a home state senator will object to a nominee deters the White House from even nominating somebody. And so we see these vacancies that are just left open and left without even a nominee. Yeah, it, it's absurd. It bears no relationship to what the blue slip was intended to be, uh, which I witnessed in the Senate. I, you know, I didn't think it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen, but it wasn't used as a overwhelming part, partisan tool. Uh, it was not partisan at all. It had to do with whether a particular senator from a particular state had a concern about a particular nominee. This is a completely different thing. It, you know, the blue slip doesn't have a very distinguished history anyway, because it related in part to making sure there'd be segregationist judges on the federal courts. But to the extent it has any legitimacy at all, it has none when you start having it being just a partisan tool which causes the White House to not exercise its constitutional responsibility as well as right to fill those seats. So we've been advocating for the blue slip to be eliminated for some time. And ideally, it would have been eliminated months and months and months ago. Here we are, January 2024. One of the objections that we have been met with repeatedly are people saying, well, if Democrats eliminate the blue slip now, that means that Republicans will run roughshod on judicial appointments the next time they're in power. And so effectively saying Democrats need to retain the blue slip so that they have the advantage of it when they're next in the minority. We still say we're only one year out from, you know, an election that could change everything. We still think it's time to eliminate the blue slip. So address this counter argument of wait, 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 Democrats need to keep the blue slip in their pocket for the next time that they're in the minority. Well, people that make that argument are living in a fantasy world. They're not following what's going on. It's, it's like the classic generals fighting the last war. That isn't what's going to happen. Uh, being afraid that the rest Republicans will run roughshod over you over doing this is crazy because they're going to run roughshod over you anyway. They've made it clear. I'm not saying all Republicans will do this at all times, but it's clear that this group of Republicans will simply get rid of the blue slip the first chance they get. So it's just absurd for Democrats to say, well, they're going to do this, they're going to do that to us. They'll do it anyway. The the blue slips are on the way out. Uh, Unless Democrats maintain control of the Senate and the presidency indefinitely, which I think most of us think is is not likely. You know, and we're not a partisan organization, but I'm just saying it's an objective. Yeah, just factually, that's not the way the country works. So why would you not get rid of the blue slips now and get some people through uh, before they just go ahead and do it anyway? Because, you know, it's something whose time is come and gone. It's time to get rid of it. Yeah. And we've said that about so many different pieces to this of it is crazy for Democrats to hamper their own efforts when we know for a fact that as soon as Republicans regain control of the Senate, any tool that they can use to maximize their own judicial appointments, they will do. Well, yeah. And I I just want to say that this should not be perceived or be tit for tat. People should only change these things if it's right, the right thing to do. And if it, it's merited based on public policy and, and having an independent rule of law judiciary. So you don't just do it because they did it to us or because they might do it to us, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is this makes no sense. Court of Appeals ones don't have it anymore. 
Republicans, if they stay in power, get in power, will do it anyway. It doesn't make any sense anymore. So it's not revenge. It's not any of that. It's just saying, look, it's just like the filibuster. The filibuster, you know, it used to be used for, you know, certain in-state situations, like I was fighting for the dairy industry or whatever it might be. See, it's nothing but a gigantic partisan tool now that is nothing to do with what the Constitution intended or even what the filibuster practice of the Senate intended for most of our nation's history. So we have to recognize those changes and modify those practices to be uh, reasonable in the current context. And that's what this is about. It's not payback. So summing all of this up, we have the challenge, or I should say the Senate has the challenge of confirming 70 judges in 12 months, give or take 70 in the next 12 months. To me, the struggle with all of this has been the number has been known from the first day of the Biden administration. We knew the 234 number, right? That's been the goal. And so the Senate has dug itself this hole of creating such a challenge in the fourth year, right? If they had been strategic, they would have been confirming more nominees in the earlier three years. Because as you have said repeatedly, the White House has been putting out nominations. It has not been for a lack of nominees in the Senate that we've seen fewer confirmations, Politically, what happens if we get to the end of 2024 and the Senate has continued to be lackadaisical about judges? What's what will the conclusion be at that point? Well, it would be a, a very disappointing and, and I think completely inexcusable mistake to do that. It, it will depress uh, so many of the groups that are concerned about the outcome of the election, particularly those who are horrified by what the federal courts are doing in many cases to women's rights, to LGBTQ rights, to immigrant rights. And they'll see that that somehow, even though the people that are leading this administration in the Senate, even though they understand this completely, that somehow they didn't remember that courts matter and that courts affect everybody's life every day. So it would be a real mistake. It will hurt in the election and it will hurt greatly after the election if this doesn't get done right. I think that is an excellent note to conclude on. Let's let's aim for that to be prevented and we'll get to the end of 2024 and hopefully have an episode of celebration. That should be the goal of celebrating 70 confirmations in 12 months. Let's confirm one judge for every year of my life. Seven. <laughs> excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Russ. Thanks again to Lindsay and Russ for joining me for this episode. If you didn't catch my earlier conversation with Professor Mark Lemley about his article, Red Courts, Blue Courts, which Russ referred to earlier, it was episode 134, and you can find it wherever you are listening to this episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please help us bring it to more listeners by recommending it to a friend. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. 